Welcome to Wise Up Governance and Boards podcast, brought to you by Three Wise Owls Governance Consultants. Covering hot topics in governance, risk, latest regulatory changes, and issues keeping directors and executives awake at night. Here are your hosts, Ainsley Cunningham and Deb Anderson. Welcome to another episode of Wise Up. Today we're joined by Sarah Zelko. Sarah is a professional non-executive director on the boards of Powerlink, Energy Super, Millivate, Stockyard Beef and Logicams. She is the chair of the Energy Super Investment Committee, responsible for $7.5 billion in funds under management, and also chairs Powerlink's People and Culture Committee. Sarah has extensive executive operational governance and advisory experience across large ASX-listed government and private corporations, having led a range of boards, committees and executives through strategic and operational challenges. She is recognised for her commercial acumen and has a record of delivering revenue growth in large corporations through developing and executing corporate strategy, negotiating commercial agreements, capital raising, M&A, construction and project management across complex multi-million dollar transactions. She is a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, GAICD, a graduate of the Australian Superannuation Trustees, GAIST, and an admitted legal practitioner in the New South Wales and Queensland Supreme Courts. She has previously held roles as General Counsel and Company Secretary for G8 Education, ASXGEM, the Wiggins Island Coal Export Terminal, WICET, and Cement Australia. Welcome, Sarah. <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. Very impressive. So tell us a little bit about your background, Sarah, and how you've gotten to this point now. Um, I, I think probably everybody says that they didn't take a normal path, but I, um, my old man was a serial entrepreneur and um, I actually grew up on the Gold Coast and had, um, he had many, um, many businesses of which we were all told that we had to have um, some sort of involvement in as we were growing up. So by the time I left school, um, I was—I actually started doing a commerce degree and hated it and moved to law, but did law at night while I was running um, one of his businesses. So Dad had half a dozen businesses going at once, and so by the time I'd run this um, chain of menswear stores while doing this law degree at night, all of my mates had done articles and were hating it. And um, I decided that I'd go in-house. And I don't think many people even knew that there was such a thing as going straight in-house in that legal profession back in those days. Um, and so then that commenced my career in working in organisations like mining and big infrastructure projects and uh, wind farm down in Wonthaggy in Melbourne, um, Did uh, had a foray in council, in statutory bodies, um, you know, water businesses, a whole range of things, but always working in big, um, uh, big organisations, lots of money, big infrastructure, a lot of front-end construction, back-end when it goes pear-shaped, um, and then progress through. And so I think you listed my, you know, um, general counsel roles, which were Cement Australia, which was great, you know, big logistics, um, uh, national, and owned by the two biggest cement companies in the world, that were going through an ACCC investigation at the time, which was interesting. Um, and then on to um, uh, Wicket, which was a massive coal terminal in Gladstone that was um, still being built, so that was a $4 billion project. And then my last role at G8 Education, which was an ASX, which was 
um, totally different. It was probably the first time that I was working with a workforce that were 90% female-based as compared to male-based. I was work, used to working with engineers and high-vis and being out on construction sites. And um, while I was doing that, I had gained a role, my first board role, well, first paid board role. I'd done a couple of not-for-profits uh, working for Powerlink, which was fantastic, um, and then got offered the energy super gig and my chairman at GAD at that stage said to me, well, you can't be on two big boards and run an ASX 200 board. So two years ago, no, two and a half years ago maybe coming up now, I started in this Ned career thing, although I can't say Ned because I, I hear Ned is a um, gambling app, so sorry, non-executive director <laughs> right. role, um, and... Uh, worked out that I also had to do some other things because one of the best bits of advice I got was um, make sure it's a portfolio career, as in make sure you're also doing some other things in the pie because if you're on a board that um, isn't doing something that sits well with your values or whatever else, you have to have other income streams. So I also do some governance consulting at Board Matters and some mentoring with McCarthy Mentoring and, yeah, and... That was when I had two roles and most recently um, my portfolio is filling up, which means that I can now um, move away from the other sort of governance stuff and move more directly into really getting my, my teeth into these new board roles, which is a bit exciting. So that's a very um, condensed version of uh, Sarah Zelko's story, I guess. So how did you go about getting your first paid ND role? I was very strategic about it. I think I'd, because I had worked and presented so many boards and worked with so many boards, I understood this this whole little microcosm that is a board role. And the one thing that you learn very quickly is that you um, have to be brave and you have to let people know that you're interested. It's not, um, it's, there's the headspace of going for an executive role where you go through, um, you know, a recruitment process and they're advertised and, you know, you do all that sort of stuff. And then you, you sit in this... Um, director land and so many times it's it, it's not it is not what you know but who you know you have, but you have to have a certain level of acumen and, and experience but after that stage and rightly enough um, they have to have heard of you you have to um, have a good reputation particularly in the listed space um, the investors want to think that they, that they can have confidence in you so it was a matter of really saying yes to everything that I could possibly get um, invited to, and also pulling on um, any contacts that I had to invite me to things, you know, everything from, you know, your PwC and your Deloitte's to your, your legal firms that um, I'd worked with and said, you know, I'd, I'm looking for a board role, put me in front of chairs, put me in front of other non-executive directors so that I can let them know, A, what my value proposition is, B, that I'm looking, you know, C, why I'm different from every other lawyer and, and I can kind of... Um, give them the lowdown about why they needed me. And had you had some not-for-profit experience beforehand? I had, I had. I'd had uh, two, so which was fantastic. And I think that that's probably a great... Some people say it's not a good grounding. I think it's great because usually, well, apart from the fact that your director's duties are exactly the same, um, their backyard is usually less tidy. And so from a due diligence and also a governance point of view, you have to look pretty hard about what's going on. You're also sucked into the vortex of that not-for-profit because they're usually scrambling for any help um, 
So you're not only call, called on because you, you can you can help out with the company sec or the governance stuff, but also they want you to do fundraising. They want to know, you know, your black book and can you get some other volunteers or some fundraising happening. So I think that was a great grounding. Plus it shows that you're kind of not bleeding edge. You know, you've been on a couple of boards and people sort of do take that as a, um, a good foray into yeah, the paid ones. So in terms of, um, I guess the hot topics of conversation around the board table currently. Um, has it been very COVID-driven and very revisiting strategy and cash flows or is it starting to move away from that now? I think um, it's two things. First of all, I think we all got barraged by webinars as directors, so we are all madly into sucking up as much information that we could about everything from, you know... Um, job keeper to what COVID was going to do, of how we we could, from a workplace health and safety, be very mindful of um, our work our workplaces. So, I think that does then raise the conversations. The thing about being a director, though, is that you need to know enough to be dangerous across so many things. So, I think um, absolutely, it's um, it's it's what we're hearing about. It's it's um, it's what other organisations are doing. I think if we if we all hear one more word about pivoting and, and <laughs> the new normal and the you know we are going to lose our bananas because it's just it's like oh my god we don't um, like the p word no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've I've seen some really good um, good things in the innovation space I've seen some um, really great conversations about um, delegations and and. Um, actually giving management more space to breathe and do the stuff that they need to do in a timely fashion. You know, the example is in um, in my role as chair of the investment committee, the markets have just been bananas. Um, and and working with our chief investment officer, you know, we have a phone hook every Friday. It's like, right, we, you know, what are the new opportunities? Are, are, you know, there was a big conversation about superannuation and liquidity um, about if Donald Trump was going to tweet once more, we were all going to lose our shit. Um, <laughs> but you know, and just and so allowing management to um, to get involved more in the derivatives markets or the currency markets, so that they could try and do um, what they could to control this this ridiculous um, change in in equities and um, and a lot of the. Um, and try and protect members' best interests as much as we could. So, yeah, lots of lots of big conversations. But yes, no, trying not to use any of those dreadful terms. Or <laughs> <laughs> I think too, there's been a lot of unexpected movement in the market, even um, overseas, and that as well. And um, even the US market has sort of seen a bit of a pick up again at the moment. And it's really just weird. Like I don't think anyone w- really would have predicted what's going on. No, and. Um, and it seems to go in cycles of about 20 days as well. It's everyone gets really excited and then everyone gets nervous and then everyone gets really excited. And it's just, it, it's, not, it's not linked to anything and um, any analogies where you try and look over past, you know, because every good investment manager loves a good graph, but you just can't, you can't map it to anything else. So, yeah. Yeah. I think everyone's just holding out for a um, vaccination now, aren't they? Which yeah, may well, or may two not um, today have been approved from... Um Australia and potentially 85,000 units available at the start of the year from one of them. So right. 
As long as it's not the Russian one, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Or or Donald Trump's version. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, the challenges you've faced in terms of um, being on a board during this time. Have you had to uh, move more towards... um, you know, have you managed with Zoom meetings or um, regular contact? Has it had to be more frequent or...? Absolutely. I think all boards are meeting more frequently, um, which is great. It's fine. Um, I, like everyone else, find um, Zoom board meetings exhausting. Um, it's not only exhausting because you're sitting in front of a screen, but you're seeing half a dozen or so people at the same time, I think, you forget that when you're in a board meeting, you you turn left, you turn right, you have breaks, you stand up. Um, but what's fascinating, and I think um, you and I had this conversation before, Ainsley, is that um, I have worked out that I'm not the best active listener compared to what I thought I was. And this is my craft, is to be in the moment and active listening and whatever else. But what you realise is, and probably more when you're listening to the webinars than the board meetings, although board meetings do go for a long time in front of a screen, is that to be in that moment and actually physically look at everybody at the same time, um, it is exhausting and you have to be aware that you're not being distracted by, you know, your phone or your laptop or, or, oh, that person doesn't seem to be really interested and that person really is. You know, you almost (laughs) end up mapping everybody else, which is quite odd. It's um, It's a different interaction and I think the emotional intelligence that you have to have in a room compared to on a screen is quite... Interesting. And then you have the dogs popping in to say hi (laughs) and the kids are popping in. Yes, absolutely, yes. Yeah, the kids aren't necessarily saying hi though, are they? (laughs) (laughs) But I think too, like, it's sort of um, been really weird to kind of, I guess, see inside everyone's homes overnight. It's sort of been like, um, we went to a couple of business chicks webinars and, um, I can't think of the name of the lady who jumps up and dances and makes everybody dance at the start of a right. webinar. And um, she's like, oh, you need more greenery and you need more plants. And so I'm running around going, okay, well, what plants can I put in here? And so I moved all my plants in and then they must have got some sort of bug in there because they didn't like the environment. So I'm in there one day and I'm in a webinar and then all these bugs start <laughs> flying at me and I'm thinking, oh, God, I've got to get rid of these plants. What the hell's happening? And, um, so, yeah, we, we ditched that pretty quickly, but it's it's quite voyeuristic, really, because you look in people's homes and go, oh, I wouldn't have put that as my background, or, like, have you not done the dishes? Or... And there's a whole phrase, I don't know what it is, about people styling behind them and bookcases and, you know, and, and, and almost curating and making sure that they don't have books that aren't appropriate because people might zoom in and actually see what they Or a mate of mine has, has one of those backdrops, which is a bookcase. I'm like, oh, you're very posh. <laughs> yeah, we <laughs> had that. So the yeah. other day we had somebody with that one that was really I good. Know, we really liked it. We were like, yeah. how did he do that? Where did he get that from? That looks very astute. <laughs> You've been doing a lot of reading. <laughs> so tell us, I guess, a little bit about mm. some of the um, kind of top tips that you uh, sort of working with at the moment or even just in your career that um, help you be um, a really great director on a board? Top tips. Um, you really have to know yourself um, because you've got to come with your best self. You've got to understand that you're at the pointy end of an organisation that um, that for all the reasons that we know um, 
people are relying on you. But back to, I guess, what you'd need to know enough to be dangerous. I subscribe to a myriad of um, uh, sites, uh, you know, back to what you were saying about how, how do you get the information. You know, there's cybersecurity, there's, um, there's wage theft, there's um, modern slavery, you name it, and there's always something going on. So I think, I think find a... Find a um, a way to be able to fringe dwell across all of the all of the things that uh, you need to know about because I can't come with my best self if I'm just playing the lawyer card because that's not my obligations. Um, so that uh, I guess to get the roles is just you've got to be so brave and you've got and because you're selling yourself, you know, it's um, you're selling your brand and your reputation um, and so. You've got to know how. You've got to know your value proposition. You've got to know it's a really competitive market because it is the pointy end of um, of organisations. And so, and then you know, third, get out there and and just go to everything. And you know, albeit as you say, if you're doing you know business checks or whatever else it is, but just be brave enough to tell everybody what you want and um, and but also how you're going to add value because at the end of the day every organization is trying to make money so how are you going to contribute to the bottom line how are you going to not just save them um, from a you know governance point of view and make sure they're backyards but how are you going to increase their revenue how are you going to help them add value I think one of the things um, with COVID and you know employees returning to work is concerns around mental health, but it's not necessarily talked about at a board level. Have you seen? Oh no, it's absolutely talked about at a board level, and um, we probably talk more about that than a lot of things right now because I don't think I, I think we could lie and say, oh, we've been through the GFC before, we've been through a recession. This is a different headspace to be in. I read a really interesting article. The Harvard Business Review um, wrote an article about this feeling that you're going through is grief because the uncertainty that everyone's going through with COVID and the fact that either they could get sick or something could happen, it just the anxiety levels are so much higher. Um, and so we're aware that my usual leadership it has to be called into question because... If people are in that fight or flight area of, of, of that sort of, you know, what I call breathing between your second and fourth rib, where you're just, it's, it's, it's not a normal state to be in. And so every, every leadership thing goes out the window. Um, you're probably feeling things that you're not telling me about because your partner's um, been laid off and um, you're really concerned because you're thinking that maybe I, as your, as your manager, um, is... is being more concerned about, you know, Sally as compared to you. And so everything is heightened. And so I I do think that we, as boards, are talking a lot more about it. We're also talking a lot more about, even from a workplace health and safety point of view, um, you know, the trips and falls at home are different than, you know, a controlled environment at work. Um, Where uh, where we're now talking, albeit that we are different from Melbourne, about how we phase people back into offices, is there going to be favouritism? Is there going to be bullying? Is there going to be a form of performance management? Because, you know, you'll allow someone a couple more privileges than others. These things are heightened. And um, and I, I think we have obligations over and above ever before in the mental health space. I should have clarified that. Good answer. <laughs> but, I mean, the board, the board members themselves. Oh, right. How are we are going? Yeah, 
I, I, I think we do check in on each other, but I don't think as much so as probably we should. Um, um, using the Powerlink board as an example, we're all in Queensland except for um, one girl, and so we're really aware that we're now meeting um, in person and she's meeting remotely, and so... Is she, is she feeling disconnected? Is she feeling as though she's in the room? Is she feeling, you know, we, we even realised that people would present and then she'd be behind on the screen. So we had, you know, we moved the presenter because it's that, it's that whole um, making sure that everybody still feels part of, of what is a, a petri tradition of, of people who come together once a month to make some big decisions. Yes, good answer. I agree <laughs> with Deb. So, in terms of, I guess, um, you know, you've had a wide career across a variety of industries um, through a whole range of ranks um, within those organisations as well. Uh, is there kind of any sort of situation that looking back on in hindsight that springs to mind where you think, oh, I really would have done that differently if I had that? Um, situation faced with me again second time round? I think that when you're in it, you can't see it. Um, I, I, I think that I was in a range of roles where it was male-dominated. Um, I spent a lot of my time not trying to see my gender, let alone theirs. Um, I don't know if I was successful at that, but I think over time you do become quite... Um, uh, resilient to it. It's been fascinating now looking back at the Me Too movement and some of the things that we all let go through to the keeper. Um, so that's a different. That's an interesting lens because it's just it was accepted and some of the things that you know. And I don't have. I don't really have stories, but I. But you do one. It's that whole. You know what you walk past is what you accept, and whether or not I was more resilient than someone, I don't know. Um, but I think that that's an interesting lens now in in the Me Too environment. And um, you sort of touched on it briefly before um, around, you know, working in heavily male-dominated industries to then working in um, uh, G8 education where it was predominantly female. How did you find the differences? Was it harder to manage um, one gender over the other? Is it, um, do you have to have more EQ versus IQ? Like, how does it, <laughs> how did you find that as a challenge? Women are selfless um, and... Um, Men are more mindful of their own space. Um, I was not only running the legal and you know company sec and uh, property and facilities team, but I was also running the safety team. And what I found is I had come from mining, where you stop and you do a safety share and you you know you always look out for you know obstacles and whatever else. Ninety-seven um, percent female workforce. If a child is crying in the corner they will hurt their back and slip over a toy to pick up that child because that's a selfless thing to do. So it, absolutely, they, 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 they didn't um, understand safety culture, which was an interesting conversation then about how does that then even relate to culture about being selfless. And I think as a, as a female cohort, um, yeah, they, they don't have the checks and balances that I think a lot of other organisations have. And I mean, childcare is, you know, not very well paid and, and um, we just started to try and have conversations with them about if you actually look after yourself first, you can look after the children better. But it's not the way that we've been brought up as well. 
You just react when you hear the baby cry, a child crying, do. don't you? Of course you do, yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that was that just blew my mind because I was so used to safety shares and, you know, just, it, it was, it was polarised. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so tell us about some of the mentoring you do and also whether you've had any great mentors in your career. All right. Um, I... I think as and, and there's a fantastic cohort of um, female non-executive directors, particularly in Brisbane and Queensland. I think um, who come together, who um, you know, there's a couple of the girls who organise quarterly drinks back in the days when we could do it more often, um, and so that pass it forward thing I'm finding now in this new space is really lovely. Um, in my and as part of that, I think when, you know, when a girl says to you, can I have a cup of coffee and, you know, find out how to get onto boards, yeah, how could you not? You know, you've kind of that whole um, bring bring everybody along for the ride. I think um, Kirsten Ferguson says don't don't throw down a um, don't throw down a, lab, a ladder, throw down a, a fishing, you know, line, which or a fishing line, um, net, yeah. fishing net. Um, so that's been amazing. Professionally, um, and I think it was a... a, a once again, one of those fabulous women who said to me, you, you know, you're mentoring all these, these women about getting on boards all the time, you should get paid for it. I was like, that sounds great. Um, and so now I work for a company called McCarthy Mentoring and what they do is they, um, they have a whole range of mentors in their suite and they'll um, go and work for or approach company who will get their 12 best hypos, you know, the the ones that they've picked out as being, you know, middle management but looking as though they're going to be the high-performing of the future, which is great from a succession planning point of view. And um, they'll link the 12 mentors to the 12 mentees and it's a full-year program. So it's they, t- they go off-site, they, you know, do innovation sort of uh, projects but also once a month um, we work with them. So it's fantastic and they take you along and they also train us as mentors about, right, you know, this is week this is month one and we'd like to talk to you about this. So it really flows along beautifully with this big program that they have. And that's been fantastic. Incredibly rewarding. Yes. Back, well, yeah. and also because, also because you forget that um, when you're on boards, you're on the business, not in the business. And I love people. And so the chance to actually still be working on sticky problems with um, people in leadership roles is fantastic because – Otherwise, often, you know, you'll see, you'll see a big problem and you'll think, oh, you know, the project's going pear-shaped. Can I work on that? And you go, oh, no, I'm on the board now. I can't. I have to, you know, I have to pull back because I also remember that being an executive, there's nothing worse than the board getting into the weeds. And so I'm very aware, you know, that I used to spend a lot of my time in executive roles telling the chair or board members, no, you know, just let them get on with doing their job. So I now have to be mindful to do that. So my mentoring, I can kind of get that, <laughs> feed that part of my personality that needs to be involved in, in executive roles still, which is great fun. So in terms of, um, I guess, managing um, for the People and Culture Committee at PowerLink as the chair, yep. um, in terms of, um, I guess, non-financial emerging risks and um, trying to find out, uh, trying to preempt risks that you don't know what you don't know. Um, from a culture perspective and a people perspective, um, what sort of challenges are you finding in that space, in particular um, around whistleblower and codes of conduct and, you know, um, instilling the right culture and incentivising 
people in the right way, especially with, you know, challenging times at present and... Mm. I think in uncertain times and particularly, um, and it was even probably pre-COVID but more so now, I think people are looking to either the companies that they work for or uh, the companies that they buy for for a sense of purpose and a sense that, um, that and they'll align themselves with that. I think a lot of organisations are realising that they have a responsibility to, um, you know, Patagonia, for example, is is a beautiful example of an organisation that culturally is attracting people because their organisation is saying, um, this is how we feel about sustainability, this is how we feel about environmental, this is how we treat our staff but also they're filling the space where governments probably aren't giving that real leadership. So um, that, that for me is, is an interesting conversation and I guess I've got my investor hat on as well. Um, people are now drawn to organisations and are buying shares in organisations where they have that real sense of purpose in times where there's a gap. You know, I mean, the Australian government in um, climate change, for example. So, you know, people are now buying and, and, and signalling using that sort of stuff. But I think from a culture um, in the organisations that I that I work in um, and that I'm seeing, they're absolutely looking for communication and they're looking for a sense of leadership and, it, you know, we've got this, it's going to be okay because it's back to that anxiety that is not, it's not, it's not so hidden anymore. It's kind of, it's up here. It's, it's where everybody sits and so, and culture's the new black, but it always has been, you know. Before we called it culture, it was just, it was a nice place to work at or it wasn't a nice place to work at, but... Um, you know, everything from safety culture, risk culture to uh, people culture. Um, they're the organisations that are making money when they've got that right. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of it makes me think of like Larry Fink and BlackRock. Oh and my God. Like and that. yes, yeah. 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 And I, because I couldn't help myself, I actually read all of his letters back to back because it's just been a fascinating read about where. He, as as a leader in that space, and um, is telling organisations of where to go and and how they can make a difference, and their obligations. Yeah, absolutely. And when I think, um, it, when you're in a position of leadership and you're living it and breathing it yourself, it's so much easier to communicate it and bring everyone along on the journey as well. Well, it's the heart to mind stuff, but yeah. it's true. It's got to resonate, and it's got to be. It's got to be a little bit vulnerable. I love a bit of Brene Brown, um, but it's also got to feel authentic. You know, you can go, it's, otherwise it's a bit of wah-wah and nobody believes it. Yeah. Have you seen any examples of um, good cultural turnarounds? Um, oh, it, it, it takes so long. It do. takes so long. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, it, it, I think it's, it's very much connected to, um, you know, it's that whole fish rots from the head. Um, but... It's very much connected to the right CEO who tells, who who really sells the story of, of this is the hill that we're running up and this is why and this is how, um, and I think that's when a cultural turnaround can happen quite quickly, but it's but it's got to be reinforced and it's got to, you know, back to the it's got to resonate and and people have to believe you. Um, that's where I see the turnarounds is is where um, you get that real charismatic, amazing. Yeah, run up that hill and this is why. And, you know, that's the reason to get out of bed in the morning stuff. Yeah, and have I think... The, have the buy-in yeah. Yeah. levels, you yeah. know? Absolutely, and I think it's a clear communication of the strategic direction that 
you're going in as well. Like if you've got a bit of a loose strategy and no one really knows what you stand for and, um, you know, you're still from an operational perspective um, aligned to a, a strategy that went out three years ago, it's all just disjointed and, yeah, um, yeah you want that really cohesive, holistic approach to your strategy, your ops plan, your budget, your governance framework as a whole. Yeah. And I guess you guys as, as you know, governance consultants know more than anyone else that, you know, a plan on the page or, you know, four pillars of, of the strategy where everybody can, can list them off as compared to the big, you know, telephone book of this is where we're going. It's just, it makes such a difference. Mm. And I think too, like even with COVID, it's really kind of almost like a change management um, journey because, you know, people, are, you know, whether you look at the Kubler-Ross model or the Cotter's Eight Steps or whatever, um, people keep going on the journey and I think they get over that fear, their anxiety, the ball of confusion, and then they get over the hump and they think that they can see the light and then reset back at one when, you know, there was a second wave and now there's more uncertainty again and now we're in a recession and so I think it's just keep resetting and I think people almost go through almost like change fatigue Mm. Because they keep going on the journey and they keep going like, oh, now I'm back on the wave again and, yeah. yeah. It's exhausting mentally, physically. Um, So in terms of, I guess, um, operational challenges in your roles as an exec um, through the years, what have you found uh, (laughs) the hardest to actually get alignment? So it's very easy for boards and execs to be on the same page from a strategic perspective. How do you operationalise that and what have you seen as really great examples of that and how do you... um... Probably the biggest challenge I had was at Wicket because it was a, as I said, $4 billion project that was over time and over budget. Um, It was a massive coal terminal that was being built at the height of the coal boom and by the time... um, I arrived and it was it was um, probably six to twelve months off being finished. It was a billion dollars over time and over budget. So, um, for me, trying to move the organisation from um, uh, the halcyon days of you know this is a great project and this is going really well to a billion dollars worth of contractor claims where you know everybody I was dealing with claims from John Holland, BMD, big, small, you know, you name it. And so it was a matter of taking a board on a journey as well because they had come from, they were all representative directors of big coal companies like Glencore and West Farmers and Yan Coal and um, they'd had these halcyon days of building this project and, um, and, you know, a coal terminal. They just wanted it to be finished so that they could ship coal and make a heap of money. Um, but we were in the trenches and everything had gone wrong and they'd gone out, you know, constructing before they'd finished design and everything. So it, for me, taking taking the organisation and the board on the journey of I now have to fight in the trenches and this is what it has to look like and I have to build an engine room of quantity surveyors and costs, you know, analysts and whatever else, um, I went into battle every month. But that was, for me, a great learning in... Um, seeing a problem and and um, having had years of working, I think, probably in-house as compared to um, having worked in a firm, I kind of knew 
what you need, this engine room that you needed to fight the good fight. And so to operationalise it for me meant um, really getting to the guts of things that were outside my area of specialty, but knowing, you know, it's, it's so cliche, but you just surround yourself with clever people. That's the cleverest thing leaders do. And that was amazing. That was an amazing experience. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of, um, before we wrap up today, because we're almost at time, but um, aspirational leaders for you, Sarah, who are you, who do you have on the vision board at home that you aspire to be? I don't have a vision board. Um, I've, I've, I think I'm old school. I think, you know, I, um, I have some amazing people who um, have sponsored me, probably as compared to mentored, um, who I love their grace and style, particularly some, you know, fantastic female directors. Um, I have had some fantastic um, ex chairs who have really helped me through the transition um but no I don't have a vision board I think I I, I think you've got to um kind of own your own path but there's some fabulous people out there yeah absolutely we went um on Friday night to a future females thing and when we heard them talking they um had a story from Pip Marlowe from Microsoft and she was like you know throw the ladder over, bring everyone along for the journey and, you know, see us all succeed together. So it's really great to hear you say the same sorts of things. (laughs) I guess my last question before we close is diversity on the boards that you sit on. On Powerlink, there's only one male. So we are are kicking it out of the park there. Um, uh, Logicams that I've just started, and it's my first ASX, I am the first female um, and happy to take that role. Um, you know, I think that particularly it's interesting the stats on the ASX 200, they've just hit 30, but it's the ASX 300 and below where it's 15% or less. So that's where um, we need to all, you know, get some more girls and get out there. Um, there is the more interesting conversation about diversity of thought and, and you know, and, and outside gender, but I'm happy to own the role of, of being, you know, the first girl on, on an all-male board and get out there. Um, I have never felt that I am the female on the board, so um, that's. But but once again, I've worked in you know male-dominated industries, and the the quota conversation is interesting right now. Um, and I personally think that if I um, if I end up being the the first girl on the board, that, and that means that my daughter doesn't have to have that conversation. Then I'm happy to do that. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for joining us. And thank you to all our listeners today. That's all we have time for. And um, join us next time for another episode of Wise Up. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah. That's all for today. Until next time, happy podcasting. And remember, if you're enjoying the show, check out our other episodes and all things governance at www.threewiseowls.com.au.